still in our study of discipleship. The last two weeks, we've uh, been looking at abiding in Christ. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact in John 15 of what Christ calls us to is the importance. The main thing for Christians is abide in Christ. Worship Him. Fellowship with Him. Love Him. Uh, apart from Him, Jesus said, we can do nothing. And so it's not about getting busy with work. It's not about just busy ministry, doing stuff. True ministry and true fruitfulness in ministry as well as life is simply abiding in Him, resting in Him, worshiping Him. That has been a great message for me these last couple of weeks. Welcome back, Pam and Gary. I just noticed you're here. <laughs> Then last week, we followed that up with the substance of what abiding is in John 15 as well. And, uh, and it's fellowship is, is, is done, is had with the Lord through the Word and through prayer. And that's on a very individual level. On a corporate level, you would also include fellowship with one another. But on an individual level, what the Lord calls you to, to abide in Him, is be in His Word and let His Word abide in you. And that will then turn your heart, your mind, and everything else into a heart of prayer. This week, we're going to look, this week and next week, I should say, we're going to look at the flip side of that coin. What happens when abiding, when fellowship is broken because of sin? What do we do? If, if abiding is what we're called to, and abiding isn't taking place because of sin, what do we do? And this is applicable to whether you, uh, you've been living in sin, or if Maybe you, you made a smart remark to your wife in a harsh tone, and you just need to take care of it then. Either way, we're going to look at confession this morning, and then next week we're going to look at repentance. Those are the two things that restores us back to fellowship, to abiding with Christ. And we're going to be in Psalm 32. Some of you know that a couple of weeks ago I accepted teaching one class at the Christian school at 8 o'clock in the morning on Christian worldview. And as part of the training for teachers that is mandatory for schools, that they take all their teachers through all kinds of different training, from uh, bus driving to bloodborne pathogens to active shooter situations to sexual abuse and looking for signs of sexual abuse, whether it's happening in a home with a, with a parent, with a sibling, with a aunt, uncle, whatever it might be, or potentially even with a school teacher. And I found it interesting that as I watch these videos and as I'm having to go through them, and, and this isn't something that the Christian school made, they, they just have to do it. So I don't want this to reflect on the Christian school. The video on sexual abuse was sad for a number of reasons. One, that it's happening to so many little children. Um, but two, that it's happening by people that it happens by, usually those closest to them. But what got me the saddest, I think, was as it talked about reasons why, for instance, a parent could do that to a child. They gave lots of reasons. All of them were outside of that perpetrator's control. It was the environment, potentially, that they grew up in, or they're also a victim of abuse or um or maybe it was they're addicted to some kind of substance and that was a contributing factor. I don't doubt that any of that's true, that those are contributing factors. But in all those contributing factors this video talked about, it missed the one thing that it should have said if it really wants to deal with it. 
The reason why perpetrators sexual abuse is because they have an inordinate sexual desire in their will. And it would not touch that. It would not mention it. It would not go down that road because it's just too personal, too hard to have to confess that. I have an errant heart and I decided to abuse this person because of I have a, I have a bad heart. Won't touch it. There's every reason given outside of it except that. I finished that video and I just sat there and I thought how difficult it is to truly confess sin. Biblical confession, I want to start out with what the definition is, and then we're going to look at our text. Biblical confession is not bringing to light something that was potentially not known. Because in the biblical sense, God knows your sin. What biblical confession literally means is you come into agreement about the facts. That's what it is. So if God says this is sin, when you confess, you say, you're right, it is sin. I agree with you. You're bringing your heart, your mind, and your will into union with the Lord about the facts between you two. That's confession. It's the recognition and it's the declaration of a fact. And it could be good or bad. We are to confess the Lord, right? Jesus is Lord. That's a good confession. We agree with the facts. But there's the sinful kind of confessions as well. 1 John 1.5 says this, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. We as people are the ones who invent fictions, but when God deals with things, He deals with facts, and only facts. And He calls us to that table to deal with facts. Confession then is meant to bring us to the light where God dwells. Do you see that? If we want to interact with God, if we want to abide with God, God is light and He dwells in unapproachable light, the Scripture says. Paul said in, in, to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6, God cannot have fellowship with darkness. What light does darkness have with fellowship? What, light, what fellowship does Christ have with Belial? None. And so if we have sin in our life and we want to abide in Christ in fellowship, what He's going to do is call us out of that darkness and into the light. The first step to do that is confession. We have to agree with him about the facts that we're talking about. If we're not going to agree with him, fellowship won't be happening. Now, I'm not saying that church and activity and all that won't be happening. Many people come and go to church week in and week out, full of sin and a heart not willing to deal with it. But for true fellowship to happen, we've got to agree with God on the facts. He calls us to the light. We confess that. So confession, and this is really what I want us to see today. Confession is an immensely glorious grace that God gives us. Because this is the only time in human history where we can confess our guilt as bad as it might be and not be condemned. This is the only period in human history when we can come clean about the facts and find pardon. And that is a glorious truth. That's what we're going to see in Psalm 32 this morning. If you want to read with me, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. So Psalm of David, who was a man after God's own heart, he said this, Blessed is the one whose transgression, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah, which means ponder this. Think about this. I I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. There's going to be four points we look at in this. The first is the blessedness of being forgiven, verses 1 and 2, if you're taking notes. The second point we're going to look at is what happens when we hide our sin from God. Verse 3 and 4. Third, we're going to consider what happens when we confess our sin. That's verse 5. And then the fourth point is that glorious truth that God is waiting to be found by us. It's verse 6 and 7. The blessedness of forgiveness, verses 1 and 2. There is not a human on this planet that doesn't seek their own happiness. Every choice we make, we make with our happiness in mind. Now, don't get me wrong. We often confuse what makes for happiness, but we are seeking our own happiness in every choice we make. Some of us think that getting slammed drunk is going to make us happy, and so we do it. Some of us think that sexual activity is going to make us happy, so we engage in it. Some of us may get happy at the acquiring of possessions, so we steal, we covet. Those are all misguided notions of happiness. But we are all seeking happiness in everything we do. And how David opens this psalm is so important. Because what he does is he lays before us, he says, if you want true happiness, blessedness, beatitude, here's how it happens. He lists four things, if you notice it with me. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is, first, the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessing comes when transgression is forgiven. Second, when sin is covered. That word is atoned for. Remember, atonement means hide from the face. So when it says, cover my sin, God, what he's saying is, God, don't look at my sin. Don't see my sin. Cover. Put your hand over it. The third thing in verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Fourth, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You can break those down even further. Look at it with me. Notice that the first two things David mentions deal with an individual's actions, his transgression and his sin. But then in in verse 2, he moves to the person himself against whom the Lord doesn't count iniquity and in whom there's no deceit. In other words, if you want to be blessed by God, here's the answer. You must not only deal with your actions, but who you are. Very often, and this is a strange reality, if if people work in counseling very much, you see this. People will confess to their actions and yet disassociate themselves from it. You know what I mean? Because sometimes it's just too painful and too ugly to see what we've actually done. I read a case this week of a man put to death 
in Texas by lethal injection. And it was beyond a doubt that he was guilty of rape and murder, a young girl. All the evidence was there, DNA evidence, it was him. He denied it the whole time, and as they were putting the injection in, they asked him, do you have any last words? You know what his last words were? Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. What a perversion, huh? Of a guilty soul. But that's what we do. We, even by chance, on our deathbed, we will disassociate ourselves from what we've done. It's too painful to say, yes, I've done that, and that is me, because sin is ugly. And so David very masterfully says real quick, you want blessing? Deal with your actions. Deal with yourself. This is who you are. This is your identity. It's hard to do that. But for those of us who humbly say, I have done this, and I did this because I am that. You take ownership of it. You're placing yourself in position to be blessed. There's no other institution, there's no other place on earth where you can come clean, come to the light, take ownership for your sin, and have a promise of blessing associated with it. If you were to do that in a court, you'd be terrified. Do you know why? Because what awaits you is a sentence. But God says, blessed. We're going to get to why that's so awesome in the fourth point. But secondly, he says, what happens then when we try to hide our sin? He gives us the antithesis to blessing in verses 1 and 2. In verse 3 and 4, he answers the question, what happens when we try to hide our sin? He says this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. So David, after stating the facts, moves to its antithesis, how not to be blessed. If you don't want blessing and you want to try and find it yourself, here's what you do. Hide your sin. Don't confess it. Keep it in darkness. Put the shell over who you really are. Wipe that smile on your face and go forward like nothing's wrong. That's how you cannot be blessed. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, this is what every one of us does, right? I am guilty of this. When we have sin, as David prayed in Psalm 51, as Mark read, my sin is ever before me. When we're guilty, no one else may know it, but our sin is ever before me. Everywhere I go, it's screaming out, accusing me, guilty, guilty, guilty. Right? And what happens when we try to suppress that truth, that fact, as God's calling us to deal with the facts, it will begin to manifest itself physically. It's interesting. We all do this in our flesh. The flesh hates to be exposed. The flesh, our flesh, is so full of pride and it is so strong that when sin is talked about and when we put our finger on someone's sin, boy, they erupt. Boy, they get angry. I'm the same. The flesh hates righteousness. The flesh hates being called out in the light. I want to read some scriptures to you. In John chapter 3, verse 20 through 24, Jesus says this, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his 
works should be exposed. In Ephesians 5, verse 11 and 13, Paul said, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. When we sin, we sin in the dark and we try and keep it in the dark. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want it to come to the light. We resist at all costs. But this is important. As I said in our opening, God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1.5. There's no consequence of sin in God. He dwells in light. And when He calls people to Himself, He calls them to the light out of darkness. And so when we want to abide in Christ, if we want to abide in Christ, we must understand we have to deal with sin. Because sin is darkness. And there will be no fellowship with God there. This is broken fellowship, as Paul said. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Turn to Psalm 31 if you're still in Psalm 32. I want to talk a little bit about how how this spiritual malady in our hearts, when we hide our sin, when we pretend like nothing's happened or when we deny it, how it begins to affect us. Psalm 31, verse 9 and 10. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Here's yet another Psalm of David that indicates when we hide our sin, when it, when we let it dwell in our hearts, it begins to affect us physically. There's stress. There's distress. There's physical problems that happen. It's interesting. I read an article dated March 12, 2001. Quite a long time after David wrote those words. But here's what they concluded. Your stomach is queasy. Something you said or did or even thought is making you feel sick and you just want to hide. This reaction might be because the shame you're feeling inside is affecting you physically, researchers believe. I could have told them that from Psalm 31 and 32. Sin affects you. And it begins to affect you physically. It drains the very life, David says in Psalm 32 and Psalm 31. You will not be able to function, especially if you're a child of God. You cannot function when we entertain sin in our life. The world tries to counsel us to avoid guilt, to avoid shame. Maybe to blame every other thing, influence that caused me to do it. I heard a defense lawyer defending a cop killer who laughed at his sentencing. And as he walked out, he said, I'm going to kill more cops. And his defense lawyer said, what people don't understand and what's hard for them to understand is that really what we're trying to do is we're trying to prosecute people who know they're guilty. Yeah, I don't understand that. So it's only if you know that you're guilty that you're prosecutable. Yeah, I'm not going to buy that. But what's interesting, he prefaced that whole statement by saying this. The legal system that we've created forces us down this jurisprudence road. That's what happens when man tries to deal with his sin apart from his guiltiness. We will work a legal system to where we don't have to deal with guilt, but can avoid it and its penalty. The courts of God don't work that way. He knows the facts and he calls us to the light to deal with the facts and he spreads them out. We have to look at it. 
both our behavior and our self. And when we hide it, it'll not only affect our soul, but our body. Look at verse 9 in Psalm 32. David says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The stubbornness of men when dealing with sin. Man, it's, it's strong. I haven't gotten to do a whole, whole bunch of counseling, but I've gotten to do quite a bit of counseling with people. And beyond that, I know myself. When you're dealing with people who are struggling in sin, you see this back and forth in their heart. And maybe you can witness to yourself to this. You're sorrowful, then you're not sorrowful. You're repentant, then you're not repentant. You want to abandon it, and you go right back to it. There's a stubbornness in our flesh that must be destroyed. We're going to get to how that happens here in a second. But David cautions us, don't be like the horse. Don't be like the mule that has to have a bit put in its mouth so it'll go the direction you tell it to. God wants willful obedience. When he says, don't go there. Okay, God, I won't go there. Don't be like the horse or the mule, David says. So it's at this stage when, when sin is denied, when sin is hidden, when sin is disguised and there's deceit in our heart in dealing with it, what needs to happen is brokenness. And very few of us ever want to be broken. It's painful. But this is the path God puts us down. This is why we sang some of the songs we sang. Listen to these scriptures as a comfort, however, to you. This is out of Lamentations chapter 3, verse 31 and through 33. And the context of Lamentations is important. The author is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations after Judah, the southern kingdom, had been taken captive. And Judah had been taken captive after Jeremiah preached for 50 years to him to repent. And they wouldn't. They were stubborn. They were like the horse and mule. And he's looking upon his ruined city, his ruined people, death and destruction. And he writes Lamentations. And in, in this chapter 3, these incredible words, the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. It is not God's desire to afflict us, but he will if it's what we need. That God's hand would be so heavy on us, as David said, in dealing with our sin, that he would allow even the very life to be drained out of us, to afflict our conscience so that we don't have peace, I hope we can see that these are acts of mercy by God. And they're acts of mercy because He's withholding all the blessing so that we might come to the table and deal with Him in fact. It's a mercy of God to afflict. It's a mercy of God to withhold peace while you're in sin so that He wouldn't encourage us in it, so that we'd have no peace or joy in it, so that we might come out of it and start dealing with Him. That's what David's saying. Your hand was heavy upon me day and night. God was unrelenting upon David's conscience and he will be unrelenting on us and he will be unrelenting because he loves us and he will not allow us to stay there. He will afflict and afflict and afflict until we come to the light. What mercy and what wisdom God has in dealing with us. 
when we ourselves don't even know what we really need. But David doesn't stop there. David finally brings his sin to the light. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So what happens when we finally humble ourselves and allow ourselves to be broken by God, and we come to the light and we confess it? Well, then we find healing. It's when we're broken. It's when we come to the end of ourself that we find healing. There's an interesting picture in Job at the end of the book of Job. With all that Job suffered and all that Job endured that God allowed, he contended with the Lord still. And when God revealed himself to Job and asked him that series of questions, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Job's response was very simply, I'd heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and I repent in dust and ashes. It's a very beautiful picture. I've talked about it before, I think a couple of weeks ago, but that picture of covering yourself with ashes is a picture of, God, I've come to the end of myself. See, ashes are what's left of what's been consumed. God wants to consume us. He wants all of us. And that ash, covering ourselves with ashes, that picture, God, you can have all of me consume me from the inside out, as we've seen before. What happens when we confess our sin? Well, first, we've got to acknowledge it. We've got to acknowledge that it was my sin. That's what David said. I acknowledged my sin. And then he repeats it. I said, I will confess my transgressions. So in confession and in dealing with God, in fact, we've got to be specific. Very often we can avoid being specific and we can avoid truly dealing with our heart by speaking in general terms. I'm a sinner. Oh, we've confessed. Well, you're insulating yourself from reality too. It's much easier to say I'm a sinner. It's much more difficult to say, God, I am full of lust. I am full of pride. I am full of anger. And here's how I've expressed all those things. And you start naming details. That is a painful process. And if you've undergone that, the tears will flow like streams. The great deep of your heart will burst open and you'll be laid bare before God and the tears will come. Wave after wave after wave. Not always in... Every sin that we sin, is it going to be that experience? But when, like David in this psalm, we withhold it and we withhold it and we withhold it, and then finally that dam bursts and the waters rush forward, there's no stopping it. But if you've ever been there, you will know also that there's peace beyond measure when it happens. There's relief beyond measure when you allow that breaking process to happen because you've finally dealt with God. And He meets you there, not in wrath, but in gentleness. You find, I have been so fearful of facing my sin and its consequences. And after going through that process of dying to yourself, you get to the end and you find a loving, merciful Savior waiting for you. That's the beauty of confession. Psalm 51, as as Mark read earlier, verse 16 and 17, David wrote this. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
And what he's saying is this, we can go through our religious things, right? David was a Jew and he was a priest. He could go to the temple and offer his sacrifices for his sin, all without repentance and confession in his heart. He says, I can do that. I can do the religious duty, but you wouldn't delight in it. If you did delight in it, I would give it. Here's what David says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, if you're willing to be broken before the Lord, you have the pleasure of God resting upon you. God will not despise you for that. Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. See, we can put on the outer display of confession and repentance without dealing with the heart. And God says, don't tear your clothing, tear your heart up. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. In Luke 18, one of my favorite passages in all the Gospels, Jesus gives this picture to the self-righteous Pharisees. He says, you know, one of you guys was praying in the temple, and you're praying so loud and boastful. I'm glad I'm not like all these other sinners. God, I pray, I fast, I tithe. And then there's that sinner in the background who wouldn't dare to approach the throne. And Jesus says he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he, on his knees, is beating his chest, crying out, facing the ground, be merciful to me, God, the sinner. And Jesus says, that man goes away justified. Because I have compassion on him, not these self-righteous men who won't deal with the heart. The world misses the grace of God because they won't let themselves come to this place of brokenness. Rending the heart and not the garment. Against you and you only have I sinned, David said. It's not that he didn't sin against Bathsheba, which is why he wrote this Psalm 51. It's not that he didn't sin in killing her husband Uriah. He did. But primarily and chiefly when we sin, we must do business with the Lord. Because we've done what is unholy and wrong in His eyes. And we'll have to account for it to Him. In one sense, it is terrifying to deal with your sin before God. Because He's holy. He's awesome. You remember when the Lord descended down on Mount Sinai and Israel standing there watching the mountain quake and the fire burn. And it says their knees were trembling. Moses said the same thing. I was terrified and my knees knocked together. God doesn't meet us there anymore. The law has been dealt with. Christ fulfilled it. Now He meets us at the open grave, which was preceded by the cross. We find mercy because of the gospel and not wrath. We find healing for our affliction. We find peace when we've had restlessness. We find joy when we've known nothing but sorrow and fear. That's what confession begins to bring to us when we deal with the Lord. Verse 6 and 7 also says the same thing, that God becomes our hiding place and He surrounds us with shouts of delivery. Even when the flood of waters of my own guilt rise, according to verse 6, they will quickly drain through the grave of Christ and I will not be overcome by it. What beauty. What beauty is as God looks upon men who afflict themselves over their sin and deal in fact with Him. 
What a tremendous picture the gospel presents to broken people. Strength, peace, forgiveness. No longer do we have to live like Adam and Eve, who when they sinned, they went and hid themselves from God. When we sin, we can come to the light and find peace. Verse, the fourth, sorry, the fourth point I want to talk about in verse six and seven. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. I don't know if you caught that, but the first time you read verse 6, it sounds like an oxymoron. Let those who are godly. Didn't David just get caught dealing with sin and hiding sin? That's not what godly people do. It's what the gospel teaches us. The godly are not self-righteous. Their righteousness is given to them by another. The godly are people who recognize, confess, and deal with the fact that we are absolutely sinful and nothing before the Lord. And we rely on the beautiful righteousness of Christ given to each and every one of us in the gospel through faith. That's what godliness is. It's renouncing self-righteousness and vindicating the righteousness of God and saying, God, I don't have any, but you offer yours to me. I'll take it. That's godly. And he says, he'll be found. Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. I want to go to real quick, John chapter 12. If you want to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12 with me. This is important. Verse 6 says, Let the godly offer prayer to you at a time when you can be found. It's what I referenced earlier when we sang that song, Broken Vessels, and truth that eludes so many people. So many people cry out to God in moments of stress and they don't find Him. So many people cry out to God Once their sin has been exposed and they've been caught, and yet they don't find God. And it's because they're still not coming to God by way of death. Death to self. So when when David writes in Psalm 32.6, he says, Offer prayer at this time when God can be found. The New Testament completes what that means for us. Jesus answers the question, where can you find me? Where am I going to be found by you? In John 12, he has some men... Come seeking him in verse 20 and following. And his answer is strange to most people. Oh, here's some seekers. They want to find Jesus. And Jesus puts a condition before them. In verse 23, he answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and what? Dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Remember, he's answering people who want to see Jesus, who want to find Jesus, and he says, you can't find me unless you die. Unless the wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will stay alone, and so will you. But if you die, you'll bear fruit. You'll find it. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus says, you've got to follow him. Where was he going? Verse 32, he tells us where he was going. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He was going to the cross. You want to find Jesus at a time when he can be found? Come to the cross. And he'll say, yes, I'm dying for the penalty of your sin. 
but you also must take up your own cross and die to yourself. Offer prayer to God. Seek God in a time where He can be found. If you want to find Him in times of distress over your sin, come to the cross and be willing to take up your own and die to yourself. It is through sharing in His death to sin that we also share in His life. Now I want to talk about this point because I don't think the church, I don't think I've understood this very well. Over and over in the New Testament epistles we read, take up our cross and follow Him, crucify the flesh, put off the flesh and put on the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul said in Romans and Ephesians and elsewhere. What does that mean? How do we crucify our flesh, church? We've just answered it. You will not be dying to self if there is no confessing going on. The way you die to self is through the confession of your sin, bringing it to the light. Do you see that? I know I've been sitting in that side of messages like this. And it is so difficult to think about bringing my sin to the light. Well, that's the point. It's because our flesh is strong and it needs to be put to death. And the way it's put to death is to expose it. You see, when it's exposed, you see it for what it is in all of its ugliness. When you deal with the facts of your sin and it comes out, it is gross. And there's shame involved. That's crucifying your flesh. That's how you do it. Now, it's not complete yet. I told you next week we're going to talk about repentance. And really, confession and repentance can't be separated. I want to end this morning's sermon with an illustration that shows you what I mean. I mentioned earlier the man in California who was convicted of killing cops. And at his trial, his defense tried to argue that he was insane. He was on meth and didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know he was guilty. But the man himself confessed to all of it. And he sat there during his own trial as they read the facts of what he did, smiling. He confessed to it. And he said, I'll do it again. I look forward to doing it again. And as they read his sentence, he laughed and got up and walked out. He confessed to what he'd done, but what did he lack? Repentance. See, church, this is why you can't separate confession and repentance. Repentance, we're going to see next week, is a change of heart and a change of mind. Some of us can confess sin defiantly and not truly deal with it. That's where repentance will come in. We're going to deal with that next week. So every one of you who's here better be here next week. I want to conclude, though, with the beauty. I'll call the worship team up with this. I want to encourage the church to see the confession is a beautiful thing. It's a thing not to be feared. In fact, I've come to believe that confession should be given as much as praise should be given. I think it's harder for us to see how much confession we really should have going on in our life. There's not a day that goes by that I don't sin. I need to be confessing that. I need to be dealing with the facts of that with God. It should be as much as my praise. But it's in that confession, church, that your abiding with Christ is maintained. 
When sin happens, fellowship is broken. We've got to deal with it. Confess it. Do you see the blessing of that? The beauty of that? The joy of it? That we can be restored. That we can be forgiven. That we can find mercy. That's the blessing of confession. It's a grace. And it's the only time in all of human history that you can confess without being condemned. That's the gospel. So we're going to sing and play a hymn that you know. We're just going to play through it musically for a little bit. I want you to take some time to go before the Lord and deal with God in your heart with the facts of what you might be struggling with. What might be bearing upon your conscience that you need to confess? And take it to Him. Take ownership of it. That's what confession is. I confess my sin. Do that now.